What's up, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Mastering Miles podcast powered by Bioendurance PT and Performance. My name is Matt Ferlindis, and I am a physical therapist and triathlon coach in the Milwaukee area and the owner of Bioendurance PT and Performance. I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. We are starting this podcast off strong, and this is the first part in a three-part series about mastering the marathon. And my guest today is Coach Jack Hackett, who owns Infinity Running Company and does a lot of running coaching for athletes both in the Milwaukee area and around the country itself. So very excited to have him on today in part one to talk about what limits us specifically in a marathon. It's important that we talk about the things that limit us the most. That way we can start to control those details and control those characteristics when we actually initiate our training a little bit more. Welcome to the show and enjoy episode one with Coach Jack Hackett. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Mastering Miles podcast. I am super honored to be joined by Jack Hackett, who is the owner of Infinity Running Company um, and is a absolutely premier running coach, has coached many athletes at this distance um, and many other distances for that matter. So welcome to the show, Jack, and feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background. Awesome. Thank you, Matt, for, for having me. Uh, I appreciate it. I still don't quite feel like I'm the person to talk about mastering in some ways. I still feel young, but I know I've been doing this for over 10 years, so that, that goes quick. Uh, yeah, my background, I've, I mean, ran most of my life, uh, ran in high school, uh, ran through college at, at the Division One level where I was at Marquette. I studied exercise physiology while I was there, uh, while I was there, I t- actually helped teach some classes to the physical therapy students at Marquette. So uh, anatomy and physiology, exercise testing and prescription. I've kind of loved the science of running for most of my life. Uh, and that's part of how I got into coaching was just that natural extension. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my background as far as getting into to coaching and why I think you're having me on is that I've you know, coach, I should probably get a number on this, but 150, 200 <laughs> uh, marathoners at this point. And uh, yeah, I've been doing it for a little while. That's that's a decent number to give you a level of expertise for sure. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun and I'm, I'm not done yet. So yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So um, not every episode is going to get started this way, but I feel like since this is the first one and it's Mastering Miles, um, I'm just going to start off this way. What is your definition of mastery, Jack? Yeah, I wanted to pull up Webster's definition when, when you <laughs> sent me this question, but mastery to me is, you know, it's the pursuit of excellence. It's not necessarily perfection. Perfection is something that can happen every once in a while, but it's not sustainable. Mastery is developing the tools to control everything that you can control. Uh, That's what it means to me, at least. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a great definition. And really just understanding what those principles are and understanding what is in your control and trying to like maximize the performance of those key individual factors is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Cool. 
with that, we will kind of introduce this whole um, series. And um, as we were talking, we kind of realized that if we're talking about mastering the marathon, there's just so much information to fit into one episode. So we kind of decided to split it up into three different parts, three different series. Um, do you want to tell us what those different parts are, Jack? Yeah, at least the way I kind of view the marathon, and especially when we talked about how to talk about this, uh, you, we kind of wanted to define the terms first of what we're doing and what we're kind of talking about with the marathon. So I think part one would make sense to talk through, you know, basically what limits us in a marathon, you know, what, you know, what our threshold, what our VO2 max, these kind of things and what, what holds us back from kind of true performance. Uh, part two, I think would make sense to talk through, you know, how to train for those things, how to make those limiters, you know, less of a weakness and more of a strength. Uh, and then you know, part three is all the extra little things that go into making a good marathon. You know, it's the the 1% or the 10%. But we got to talk about the 90% first. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And um, I really appreciate your insight too, Jack, because when we were planning this, I was really gung-ho to be like, all right, let's just get right into the weeds. Let's talk about the training. And I appreciated you for helping me like take a step back and be like, well, we should really kind of define some things first. And I totally agree with that. Like defining those things so we understand how those things actually play a part in training, in all of the little things, in all the physiology aspects of things. So um, I think this is going to be a really, really good way to organize it and really lay it all out. Based off of that, um, to kind of understand and better define how to be better overall, like throughout that marathon distance, like you said, we need to understand what really limits us, especially physiologically. So what do you feel like are the things that limit our performance when we are trying to run a marathon over that 26.2 mile distance? I think the three biggest things, or at least the way I, I view it, is it's almost like a tripod. If, if any one of these three things fails, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, the first piece is going to be, you know, the overheating aspect of it. So this is part of where temperature can be so dangerous. Uh, with Along with overheating, the second kind of piece is getting carbohydrates in, the fueling. Uh, so without the fuel, you know, the, it's not a perfect analogy, but the car stops <laughs> if you don't put enough fuel in it. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of the, the third piece to that is pacing, which plays into both of those. Cause if you go faster, you burn more fuel. If you go faster, you run hotter and you overheat. Mm -hmm. uh, so all three of those kind of things play together to make up a good marathon. If you can control those three things and the training has been good, you'll probably run a pretty good marathon. Cool. Um, so let's kind of split up those topics and kind of chat with them individually. Um, we're going to start off with the heat and the temperature. And I think this past year, we were given a really good example of the Lakefront Marathon in Milwaukee, a really, really hot day for early October. And I feel like that made a lot of people take a step back and be like, okay, it's really, really hot out. I may not be able to perform as well as I really hoped that I would and maybe not be able to get that clear PR that I hoped or whatever it may be. And so we have to kind of rein it back a little bit. So like physiologically speaking, why does heat have that effect on us? Like why, if it's really hot out on race day, why should we take that step back and be like, okay, what do we need to do to get past that? Why is our performance, why may not our performance be as tip top as we hope it would be? It's 
And really it comes down to a protective measurement. Uh, our brain has something called the central governor. I, I was taught it as the central governator and I can't un, unhear Arnold's voice. Uh, <laughs> so I, I picture, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, telling our body basically like, Hey, it's too dangerous. You know, don't, yeah. don't keep going. Uh, when we train, we can kind of train and push against that. So that it starts to realize, Hey, this is somewhat safe. Like, okay, we can push it a little bit further. We can push it a little bit harder. Uh, but there is still a limit and especially on a day like Lakefront where it was, you know, I think it got up to mid eighties and it was 90 some percent humidity at, at yeah. race start time. Uh, that was pretty brutal for, for a lot of athletes. And I mean, that same, or the weekend before, well, same, same weekend, uh, mm-hmm. Twin Cities was canceled because yeah. it was even hotter and, and just as humid up there. And I genuinely think it saved a life by, by not doing that, I, you know. Nobody thinks it's going to be them that ends up in the medical tent. But I know talking to a few people that worked the the med tents at Lakefront, it was packed. Mm-hmm. People were crashing all over the place. So mm-hmm. that heat is is not something to be kind of messed with. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, that's really, really dangerous. When our core temperatures get up above a certain level, our body systems start to shut down because we're literally kind of overcooking ourselves. And physiologically speaking, we can't perform when our core temperature gets so high up in the air. And then, like you said, our body is literally trying to protect us and survival is the most important thing at that point, not running a PR in a marathon. Yeah, exactly. It's our bodies are very good at, at saving themselves. That's kind mm-hmm. of the most core instinct that, that you can find, uh, really, even at birth, we have a lot of those instincts that are protective. So mm-hmm. it's probably a very good thing because we want to, we want to stay alive, you know, no matter what it is. So, um, what are overall some strategies that we can employ to reduce this effect during a race? Like how can we better, let's say we're preparing for like a summer marathon or summer race. Like how can we, um, and what can we employ to be better and a little bit more heat resistant overall? There's kind of two factors. There's the stuff you can do training wise in preparation, you know, especially the weeks and the months leading into a hot race. Uh, you can do things like overdress for the run. If you in the summer train with a long sleeve, or a half zip or whatever uh, that adds a little bit of extra stress onto your system. Or even you know, some people will train indoors, uh, even though it's warmer indoors and you're going to sweat and deal with the humidity. Uh, that can be a good stimulus to help deal with that heat. Uh, also, post-exercise saunas have been proven to be a beneficial thing for heat resiliency. So you'll see like a lot of these athletes that are training for the Olympic trials, it's going to be kicking off in February in Orlando. And right mm-hmm. now it's scheduled for a noon start time. Oh, geez. Pretty yeah. much every one of those athletes is has any hope of, of doing well there is getting in the sauna a few times a week after, after running. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first piece to it. The What can we do in preparation for it? Mm-hmm. On race day, there's a few different strategies too. And especially like in a case like Lakefront this year where the humidity is so high, uh, when we sweat, we're sweating for a reason. It's to induce this process as an evaporative cooling. So that sweat goes to the surface, wind goes against it, and it dries, which has a cooling effect on our bodies. But when mm-hmm. it's so humid, it just becomes not an effective cooling strategy. So our bodies aren't very <laughs> aren't very smart sometimes, and it just keeps producing all that sweat, even if it's not doing us any good. So we need to you know, add some external cooling elements. 
Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like a you know ice dipped sponge or a, a soaked rag or an ice pack or whatever that is. Uh, I know quite a few of the athletes that I worked with. We got plans to have people stationed to to give them you know cool rags and things like mm-hmm. that to, to put, especially on high surface area or high blood flow areas like the neck, armpits, uh, you know, around the waistband, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to help it get some kind of cooling in so we could keep that core temperature from spiking too high. Yeah. And it's a little bit of my understanding too, like when we place ice or cool things around our neck, you know, like you said, it's trying to cool off that blood. And a lot of that blood is heading up to the brain too. And so I think it's also a matter of of giving that brain that optimal temperature to function at so it can take in that um, information and be able to change our pacing and change our effort um, as much as possible. And if we're cooling some of that blood flow down up to our brain, the brain's going to be able to kind of give a little bit more effort and be a little bit more happy with just our overall core and body temperature as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I... This is a way oversimplification, but my my understanding of it is that it's essentially sampling, you know, at two places. <laughs> I get mm-hmm. way oversimplifying it, but like there's that core temperature, but then there's also what our brain in our head is experiencing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely mm-hmm. agree with that. And um, you can see this, uh, you know, in action by a lot of the pros. Um, I follow a lot of triathlon, and especially when you're talking about Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. Of course, it's always going to be hot at that race. And the two areas that the athletes always put ice in is around their neck or in their hats to kind of cool down their um, kind of brain area. And then a lot of them are also putting ice packs down their racing kits as well to kind of cool down that core temperature as well. So it's cool to see that a lot of the athletes who are very in tune to science and what's going to help them perform at their absolute best are using those same exact strategies. It's it, it. I've seen it in running quite a bit, uh, but like Nike, for example, makes a cooling vest that I've seen, you know, Galen Rupp, who's an Olympic silver medalist, mm-hmm. wearing that before going out. Like you think, oh, I need to warm up for my event. Mm-hmm. It, and like he's still warming up, but he's keeping his core temperature low while warming mm-hmm. up his muscles and, and the ligaments and tendons and getting his body ready to mm-hmm. perform while keeping that core temperature from spiking. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that. So like leading up to this episode, I was doing a little bit of research and I found like a really nice study, meta-analysis. I believe it's done by Aladad et al. And it's all about like, you know, efficacy of heat mitigation strategies. And really the number one strategy that they said was our aerobic fitness. So how our training is. And I think that's really interesting too, because if we're better trained and better trained in those heat we're of course going to be able to manage those conditions a little bit better. And if it's something where we're not used to that, our body is going to get into that environment or get into that area and it's not going to know quite how to react. So our body has to almost adapt to those types of environments and things of that nature. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, like we talked about, first step is to train and prepare for it. Mm -hmm. And that we got to teach that central governor to be like, Hey, it's okay. I've been here before we've been mm-hmm. warm. I'll survive it. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, but yeah, that was a great study mm-hmm. or a great meta analysis, I should say. Yeah. And the other thing too, is um, another thing that was really effective for them was like pre-exercise cooling. Kind of like you said, um, the athletes are warming up, but they're trying to employ as many cooling strategies 
as they can while warming up. So you're kind of starting at that lower level. And so that central governor can be, oh, okay, it's okay. I have some room to actually increase temperature a little bit and I'm going to be okay. That way we can squeeze as much performance out of that as possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like that. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Do you feel like that kind of closes the book on heat a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it's a short book, I guess, but uh, that covers <laughs> at least the big kind of points to it. I guess the last piece, and we we hinted at it, but is the humidity versus heat. Uh, yeah. You know, it, we like I said, we talked about it a little bit, especially with Lakefront being so humid in those 90% humidity kind of range. It, the air just carries so much water that that evaporative cooling isn't as effective. Mm-hmm. It can be a hundred degrees and like, you know, whatever, 10% humidity and sweat is going to be a really effective kind of cooling strategy then mm-hmm. uh, or a lot more effective. Uh, so that's a kind of important piece to look at is what's called wet bulb temperature, which is basically a combination of the heat and humidity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't really know that I'm adding anything of value there just to keep that in mind that <laughs> that plays a role uh, in how hot your body is going to get or like mm-hmm. how how that core temperature is going to respond to the environment. Mm-hmm. Like there can be a pretty big difference when humidity is present and not. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us runners have kind of been there where we head out for a training run on a really hot and humid day and we can just feel like we just don't have the energy or we like are feeling like we're putting a lot of effort into running and we're just not running, you know, the same paces or anything like that. And I think that's a really, really good example. And, you know, sometimes a dry heat is okay, but when you add that humidity, like you said, we're not able to actually evaporate anything. And so we just feel like we're in an oven almost essentially. Yeah. I think one other, this just makes me think of this, the ideal race temperature. I, I can't remember the study offhand now, but uh, the ideal race temperature is something like 41 degrees mm-hmm. uh, Fahrenheit. And, you know, every kind of degree that we go up over that is like uh, getting away from kind of ideal that our bodies naturally produce heat. Mm-hmm. One, when we're exercising, we're burning energy. And they say burning because we're creating little tiny little fires in our body Mm -hmm. uh that produce that that heat like there's all of that and we have to shed that heat somehow so when the environment is cooler it's easier to kind of shed that heat Mm -hmm. it's just a little bit i don't know useful information when you're looking for for a marathon to run your pr at maybe check the average start time temperature (laughs) yeah for sure Uh, i mean that's a that's a huge factor in it for itself I was on a, a group run this morning and we were ch- chatting because it was a nice cool morning here in, in the Milwaukee area. I think it was like 36 degrees, but like no wind. So it just felt really good. Um, pretty close to that ideal race temperature that you were talking about. And we were kind of talking about like our d- ideal temperature to run in. And I'm a little bit of an outlier because I actually really like running in the heat. I know it sounds really weird and I don't, you know, I know I don't perform as well in the heat, but I don't mind, you know, kind of um, getting up there in temperature a little bit. Cause it makes me feel like I'm working a little bit harder, but yeah, you can just see that. And the majority of runners love that forties, fifties degree because they feel like they're the fastest and can put literally the most effort into it a little bit. Yeah. And they can. So yeah, <laughs> physiologically they can. <laughs> All right. So the next on the list is fuel and fueling and 
this is something that, you know, all runners realize when we're racing a marathon, we are at minimum racing over two hours of time. And so we need a source of fuel and we need a source of nutrition during that. And there's still like a lot of debate about like around like what's the best strategy. And we're going to get into that a little bit and kind of um, identify what we think is based off the research is the best strategy. But first off, can you take us through like the physiology behind why fueling is so important for running in general, but also for the marathon? Yeah. So that's a big question. To, to yeah, get it is. <laughs> uh, basically, our body needs to produce that energy to run. The simplest way to do that is with uh, glucose. It's you know blood sugar, basically. Our bodies store glucose in a more complex formula called glycogen, and it stores that glycogen basically throughout our body, but usually pretty close to our muscles. Uh, it's actually one of the things when we start training, especially early on, is we get better at storing glycogen. Uh, so that's part of this is just training volume for a marathon is developing the ability to store more glycogen. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we're reasonably well-trained, you know, that kind of tops off. And we don't quite have enough glycogen to get us through a full marathon. Uh, at least not, I shouldn't say that we don't have enough glycogen to use efficiently in the time <laughs> to run the mm -hmm. full marathon. We will, you know, go through most of it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of one piece to the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are stored fats and things like that, but the thing with fat utilization is that it is a much less efficient process. And what I mean by that is that there are just a lot more steps that our body has to go through in the amount of time that it takes to process, you know, one unit of fat, our mm -hmm. body can go through about 50 units of carbohydrates, mm -hmm. uh, 50 to hundred. It kind of depends you know, on the condition that you're, you're looking at. Uh, so that carbohydrate is a way more efficient fuel. And when we're trying mm -hmm. to run our best marathon, our fastest kind of marathon, we want to use the most efficient fuel possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's always some debate about like, especially in the, the, you know, quote unquote old days, you know, pre super shoes and pre Nike's breaking two, where people did a lot more like fasted runs to try and learn how to use the fat stores. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that, uh, that, that Nike breaking two project found was obviously the super shoes get, have gotten all the headlines, but part of that, process was they learned how to fuel a lot better. Mm -hmm. We used to only be able to get in, you know, 30, maybe 60 grams of carbs an hour mm -hmm. before our stomachs would just get upset and, and, uh, have indigestion, have diarrhea, have, you know, upset stomach, all sorts of things. Uh, there wasn't enough Pepto in the world during a race. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks to, you know, like a Morton, which is a hydrogel product, you're yeah. able to get in 80 grams of carbs in one drink mix. Mm -hmm. and they were able to, for Kipchoge, he was pushing 125, 130 grams an hour. It's a lot. Which is a ton. And that's the equivalent of, you know, six gels uh, an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds crazy. Can you imagine taking one gel every 10 minutes? Yeah. Uh, you know, for a lot of people, that's way too much. But thanks to these drink mixes and things, you're able to get those kind of carbohydrates in and uh, not have that upset stomach. And mm -hmm. that was one of the big breakthroughs 
uh, is about worth as much time as the shoes were, which is, you know, for the average person, the shoes have been worth five to 10 minutes, uh, you know, and over the course of a marathon, mm-hmm. so we're able to get that just by fueling more now too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a piece that's way underappreciated for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should put the huge caveat in that, like, I am not a dietitian or a nutritionist or mm-hmm. anything like that, but this is based solely kind of on the you know, peer reviewed journals that are out there and yeah. the, the scientific studies and, and the experience of a lot of those athletes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Neither of us are registered dietitians or anything like that, but we're kind of basing it more off a lot of the research that we've read and a lot of the research um, that we've kind of seen, as well as, like you said, Jack, personal experience with professionals, like watching what the professionals do, as well as seeing what works best for us, as well as our athletes and everything like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, I think, a hugely kind of important piece. Uh, to talk about how a nutrition and a diet dietitian can give you a lot better advice around fueling kind of in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting those carbohydrates in is is such a kind of an important piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the intra fueling, but I, I should also kind of mention the uh, carb loading as mm-hmm. well. It's a whole different kind of process. And this is one which if you have any kind of dietary issues, talking to a nutritionist or a dietitian makes a lot of sense. But in general, you should get, and it's going to depend on your weight. There's good calculators out there. We can even put one in the show notes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, roughly like a three-day carb load of about 600 grams. You know, again, that's, I'm basing it more off of somebody like my my size and I'm a little bit bigger. So maybe for, for smaller people or women, it would be a little bit less. Uh, but, you know, roughly having three days of 600 grams of carbs is how we can help get those glycogen stores all the way to max, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you can have a little bit less on race day. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of an uncomfortable amount of carbs for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, it makes sense that carbs are the obvious choice because, I mean, essentially our brain and our muscles run on glucose. And that's what carbohydrates are, is they're different forms of glucose. And it's the simplest kind of transition physiologically going from a carbohydrate straight to glucose versus when we're talking about using fats, it's a much more complex process that takes a longer amount of time to do. So it really makes sense that carbs, especially when we're talking about the marathon are the obvious choice. And when we see individuals like Eliud Kipchoge, who's taking in 125 grams, um, in order to see if we're able to break that sub two barrier in the marathon, it makes sense that with all the research they put into it, that that is the most efficient way to go about fueling during the race. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of two more points that I really want to hammer home on this. But the mm-hmm. first one's more kind of knowledge based. The carbs are the only fuel source that we can use without the presence of oxygen. So mm-hmm. especially when we're getting later in the race or, you know, whatever, you're going up a hill and you're starting to breathe a little bit heavier and you're getting into oxygen debt, which really in a marathon shouldn't be a huge issue, but Mm -hmm. uh, this is more important for 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons, but the marathon definitely, it still happens. Uh, When you're running an oxygen debt, carbs are the only fuel that you're really able to kind of burn. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, you're always burning fats because you do have some oxygen, but that 
having those carbs in your system are going to help bridge that gap and make sure that you're able to keep performing at the highest level. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other kind of piece to it is that Kipchoge's, you know, 120 grams plus of carbs was a process. It took a while to get there. He took many different steps and trained with carbs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I kind of hinted at those, those fasted long runs to help develop those, uh, you know, like fat utilization and, what the research, at least that I've seen now, indicates is that by having these high carb sessions where you're you know completely fueled, is that it's taking less out of you. You're able to recover faster, and you're able to perform at a higher level. So part mm-hmm. of this, especially in the marathon, the boom of these two hour, you know, two hundred one, two hundred two, two hundred three marathoners on the men's side, or two eleven women's marathon, which is mind blowing, mm-hmm. uh, is because they're able to train a, in those super shoes, which is a piece of it, but they're able to train with a lot more carbohydrate in the system. And they're able to stay fresher and healthier and do more sessions, uh, than they ever have at mm-hmm. faster paces. Mm-hmm. So, and it's also important to note, kind of like you're saying, you know, individuals that are running the marathon should not expect to show up on race day and then all of a sudden be able to take down hundred grams of carbs per hour during the race. So in training, we need to train our bodies to be able to handle that. Do you have any like special techniques or training principles that you use with your athletes or for yourself to help that process and to help us become a little bit more efficient at taking in those carbs? Yeah. So I mean, you know, train your gut, uh, is the kind of easiest summation of it, but typically I'll start with those long runs leading up to it, you can start with maybe 30 grams an hour. And then the next time you're out, you're going for 40 and 60 and 80. So you get into that, you know, green zone of, I just did air quotes. This is a podcast. You can't see it, but into that <laughs> like good green zone of, of fueling, uh, but you have to build up to it and, and tolerate it. And that's part of where trying different things out. I'll say, you know, Morton has worked really well for me and there's tons of athletes that has worked well for, uh, of the couple hundred people that, that I've, you know, worked with for, for a marathon, I'd say 90% have ended up using Morton, but there's been a mm-hmm. handful, one or two here or there that, that just hasn't sat well or worked well. Uh, so you have to find what, what works for you mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get those kind of carbohydrates in. Yeah. Yeah. And never show up to race day trying anything new just like the at the age old adage of don't do anything new on race day just because then you're asking for a little bit of um, a disaster with it so we definitely like you said need to train that gut and train our bodies to take that in just like we need to train ourselves to be able to tackle the whole 26.2 mile distance overall yeah i think the fueling is such an important part that isn't talked about enough hopefully we've we have talked about it enough now that people mm-hmm. realize that is important, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, building up to it, being smart, slow and steady and experimenting with what's, you know, what's out there so that you get to that level of kind of carbohydrate, uh, loading and you can use that, those carbs into it's, it's a skill to not just take them in, but to also utilize it. Your body has to learn when you have that much carb present, like our blood has to be able to transport that. Our muscles have to be able to utilize it. Uh, those are all kind of skills that our body has to to develop and work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of my research kind of leading up to this too, I was kind of taking a look at some of the research more 
looking specifically at a high fat to kind of piece that apart and kind of understand why research is kind of saying that it doesn't work. And one of the big things that I found, and I'll share some of these studies in the show notes too, is there seems to be a decreased um, running economy, especially when we're working out or running at levels more than 70% of our VO2 max. And kind of like we said, there's a much longer process and more complex process to turn our fats into glucose and to turn that into carbs. So it really makes sense when we're talking about um, running at a very high intensity, like we would be during a marathon, that it's just not as economical to turn those fats into carbs. And it's much easier just to deliver the source right off the get-go and deliver the carbs right off the get-go instead of trying to force our bodies to make that change overall. Yeah, I think that's that's an awesome kind of summation of it. And even for ultra running, I haven't seen any studies that have actually shown that high fat, low carb diet to be more effective. Mm-hmm. I, I know there was like that big supernova study um, that they did on Olympic race walkers. And um, like I said, I was looking at some of those and they kind of had the same thing. Like there weren't, weren't any increases in like dramatic increases in performance. And that's what we're looking at. Like what's going to help us perform better. Like both groups, both like low carb, high carb um, had increases in VO2 max because they were doing training, but there isn't anything that like stood out for that low carb, high fat group except for the um, decreased economy and decreased efficiency of being able to turn those um, fats back into glucose and kind of back into carbs. So it's really important to look at some of that stuff and realize that, yeah, it's not quite as economical overall. If I, if I remember right, there was like a Supernova 2 study that followed up and then it, it showed like a slight inefficiency in the fat group even compared to the mm-hmm. carb group. Yeah, because uh, I think they originally said that maybe it wasn't a long enough time frame to to bet in. And yeah. so they, I think was it the first one was like eight weeks and then they went to like a 12 week or 16 week study, something like that. I think the first one is actually, uh, let's see, it was actually three weeks, I believe. Um, okay. The yeah, then they, maybe they is... went to eight weeks or they went mm-hmm. to a longer time frame. I don't have it in front of me right now, but mm-hmm. uh, but I remember they tried that study again on a longer time frame because all the the low carb, high fat people were saying, well, no, like you didn't, you know, give us a fair shot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it showed still basically like, no, it wasn't actually any, any better. In fact, mm-hmm. I think that over the longer period, it was actually even less efficient. If I remember mm-hmm. right, like, mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've read, read that study, but. And it's interesting too, because sometimes it just seems like there are those outliers that absolutely, you know, swear by, I do high fat, low carb. It really works for me. Look at all my race performances. And yeah, that may be true. There may be some outliers where everyone's physiology is a little bit different. But when we look at the masses and when we look at specific performance for the marathon, carbs just always kind of keep coming up. And I've even seen some of those individuals where yeah, maybe they're really, and this is a lot in terms of like ultra races and Ironman races, a lot longer than marathons. Those athletes are still taking in carbs to help that process out a little bit and to still kind of give them a boost in that energy. So I think that speaks for itself when we're talking about distances like the marathon that um, carbs seem to be king. Sometimes we can get caught up in some of those crazes and it's important to like go back to the solid research and not necessarily the case studies or the N equal one examples, but to look at, okay, what is the research actually showing us and what is 
proving time and time again to be the most efficient for marathon runners overall. So yeah, carbs are king. Carbs are king. I like it. All right, cool. So we've talked about heat. We've talked about nutrition. The last main factor is pacing. And I think this is super important to chat about for actually when we're running the race, when we're in our training, um, everything like that. Like we know pacing is so important during the marathon. Um, how exactly does pacing relate to physiology? Does it actually like relate to our lactate levels as we run and things like that, Jack? Yeah, that's a good setup question. <laughs> yes, it it definitely does. Uh, you know, a more even pace, the less jarring on our body uh, or on our systems than two. The analogy I I can I can only ever picture it this way is like a you know, your foot on the gas. Like if you slam your foot to the to the ground or you you know let your foot off, the car usually doesn't respond very well. But if we can keep our foot just steadily on the gas, just slowly pushing it down over the whole course of the race, uh, that tends to be the the way to to pace it. And what they've shown now too is that essentially the best pacing that you can have is roughly even with a slightly faster finish. Now that's for a lot of these elites for the average person. Sometimes you know, just the fact that you're running 26 miles is catching up to you and you might slow down. But I think keeping in mind that even effort the whole way through, you know, and it's going to get harder at the end where you're emptying your tank. Uh, but having that more or less even effort the whole way through is the best kind of mm -hmm. way to go. Mm -hmm. And kind of a lot of my um, looking at a lot of this, it seems like it always kind of goes back to lactate. And I feel like there's lactate is a big buzzword in the endurance community right now. And people are kind of learning more about it overall. Um, like what exactly is like lactate and our lactate thresholds and all of those kind of things. Yeah, this is you know, probably one of the oldest myths in running is the lactic acid is is bad for you. Like, oh, I can yeah. still feel the lactic acid a few days later. The like true lactic acid is dissipated within seconds of production and it splits into, well, that lactate which is then kind of what we're talking about with that lactate threshold uh, splits into lactate and then a hydrogen ion, which is the acid kind of piece. Mm -hmm. um, so like that acid is somewhat harmful to the environment of that muscle cell. So if we go and get too acidic, that muscle doesn't, it doesn't love that environment as much and it, it becomes less efficient. So that's the oversimplified kind of version of what's happening with the acidosis around the muscle. Sure. The lactate piece is interesting though, because lactate itself kind of plugs into the Krebs cycle and it becomes energy. So that lactate can basically be another fuel source. Mm -hmm. The issue is you need to train your body to deal with it. Mm -hmm. this, and you know, we'll talk about training more, but in the second kind of piece of this series, but I am such a huge fan of doing these types of fartleks where you're in, in, inducing some of that acidosis and, and some of that lactate production, because mm -hmm. we want to teach our body how to use it as a fuel source. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't think people realize that that lactate is such a potent 
fuel source if we can teach our bodies how to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that lactate threshold is essentially talking about the point at where our body can no longer buffer the acid and that acid starts to build up mm -hmm. and that acidosis starts to kind of take over. Uh, that's kind of roughly that lactate threshold. Uh, cool. Yeah. That's the most simple definition that I know. Yeah. I don't. And there seems to be like different zone models. So we've all heard of like zone two. Um, there's a five zone model, the seven zone model, there's the three zone model. But like when we look at just like the three zone model, there's like a zone one, zone two, zone three. And it looks like the difference between zone two and zone three, if we look at the upper end of that first, um, that dividing line is like our LT2 or our lactate threshold. And kind of like you said, um, that's the point where our body really starts to build up more lactate and we can't clear it quite as fast. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's 100% spot on. Mm -hmm. And so that's more of like the really, really high intensity anaerobic effort where the amount of oxygen that we're bringing in just is not enough to help us actually clear all of that out. Exactly. If we tie it back to what we were talking about before, that's where you then have to burn carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you can't utilize the fat stores. I mean, that's still mm -hmm. going on in the background, but mm -hmm. for that extra energy production, you you need those mm -hmm. carbs. And so then if we look at the d dividing line between zone one and zone two, that's more of our LT1 or what's kind of called the aerobic threshold. Can you describe that threshold a little bit more too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also kind of corresponds very well with our, our respiratory threshold then as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially the point at which we can no longer just comfortably run. It's where our body starts to have to take more breaths. And essentially that's to bring it back to the central governor. <laughs> he starts to kind of realize like, Hey, this is getting a little bit hard. And we switched to something that's called catabolic kind of production. So our, our body starts to break things down like those fat stores, like those glycogen stores, it starts to kind of gear up, uh, for exercise. And that's, you know, kind of roughly that, uh, the point where we start to produce some lactate basically. So that's that mm -hmm. LT one, uh, mm -hmm. is where that kind of production starts. Mm -hmm. So then to kind of like, of it at least. <laughs> yeah, cool. No, that's my understanding of it as well. And so then if we like really oversimplify things, and again, this is oversimplifying. If we look at like that zone one bef below that aerobic threshold, that's kind of our like really, really easy pace. We're going, we can have a conversation with somebody because we're able to take in um, oxygen well enough. And we're at the point where our like respiratory um, breaths are not increasing to a level. And then if we kind of go past that first threshold into like a zone two, that is kind of the point where we're at our threshold. Essentially, we're breathing a little bit harder, but then we're able to deal with that lactate as well. Um, and so we're kind of at that threshold where like, yeah, lactate is increasing a little bit, but we're also able to deal with it. So it's not getting out of hand. And then if we progress past that um, lactate threshold into zone three, that's where Okay, lactate is building up. That's really, really high intensity, um, like running as fast as we can, and our body just can't clear that. And so we're going to develop more fatigue at that stage of the game. Yeah. And in a marathon, you're not going to get into that zone three until the end, hopefully. Uh, right. Or if you get into that zone three, it's because there's a big hill, let's say, right. Boston, with the Newton Hills. Yeah. You might kind of get to that zone three 
but then the goal is to be able to recover and, mm-hmm. and get back into that zone too, mm-hmm. where, where you can kind of deal with it. Cool. Uh, and that's, I think a training error that a lot of people make is that they don't ever get comfortable with that lactate production or yeah, yeah. You know, they're just not yeah able to kind of deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, as far as the pacing goes, that pace gets too, too hot. You're, you know, might've been a good goal pace for you and you did plenty of training at that level. But now all of a sudden that pace isn't sustainable 20 miles into a run or into the race because you're going uphill. And now you're having that issue and then kind of having to, well, then you start overheating and mm-hmm. all those yeah. things that start to pull yeah. pull us back and, and yeah. hit that proverbial wall. Yeah. So then when we kind of, that sets us up really nicely to talk about pacing. Um, so how exactly should we pace? There's so much out there, like we can use heart rate, we can use effort, we can use feel, we can even use like running specific power meters, but like what is the best way to pace ourselves, um, both while we're training as well, especially when we are racing our marathon? I I always love this question because we try to come up with all these different tools, like you said, you know, heart rate, uh, you know, whatever lactate testing, which we haven't gotten to instantaneous lactate testing yet at this point, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've seen people using like intramuscle EMG readings to kind of predict fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but time and time again, at least every study that I've ever seen RPE, uh, which is the rating of perceived exertion, like how hard does it feel to you ends mm-hmm. up being the best kind of guide for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, heart rate is not a reliable narrator for us over, over the course of a marathon. You have something that's that called cardiac drift. Essentially our heart can't produce at that same level over the course of the entire marathon and things will drift away. Uh, it's part of what makes fatigue kind of come into, to effect. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the simplest way to explain it, but you can think of it like the that heart rate just starts to kind of rise no matter what at the mm-hmm. same level of effort that heart rate will just start to drift upwards uh so you might have that nice neat modeling of zones uh but slowly you're staying at one level but over time your heart just pushes you into you know from that zone two to zone three yeah and all of a yeah. sudden you're you're running into some issues yeah uh, yeah this is kind of a an aside, but one of my favorite anecdotes about that whole breaking two project, uh, when they did all the initial testing for the athletes that they were going to take, like Kipchoge wasn't the guaranteed pick. Uh, he actually had some of the worst, you know, worst values of VO2 max running economy, these kind of things. I say worst, he was an Olympic silver medalist at the time, <laughs> uh, behind probably the greatest distance runner of all time, Kenneth uh-huh. Kele, but Anyway, he didn't have these remarkable values, but when they, like when they were fresh, but when they tested them after, I think they were doing 90 minute tests, uh, at the end of the 90 minutes, his values were the the highest in the group. He -hmm. had what is called fatigue resistance. Like he just didn't have as much fatigue or as much of that cardiac drift. Mm -hmm. Uh, and who knows whether that's genetic or Mm -hmm. training or what, but, uh, yeah. Anyways, that's just a fun anecdote. That's yeah. completely lost the plot now. 
it, uh, it's it's interesting though but i've i've delved into the research too and it's just funny because we have all this technology and our society i feel like is always like okay this technology is going to help us but then when you actually look at the research it's like okay well how do you feel like do you feel like you're working hard do you feel like you're not working hard like it comes down to effort and literally how we internalize that effort and how we are feeling during that and again that goes back to the rating of perceived exertion. Um, so when we talk about like that RPE scale, how exactly do we use that? Like what exactly is what exactly is an appropriate scale for us to use to gauge that rating of perceived exertion overall? Yeah, typically, typically it's used like zero to 10 uh, mm -hmm. is the most common. There's something called Borg's RPE, which is like the first version of it, which mm -hmm roughly correlated to heart rate, but mm -hmm. anyways, that was from six to 20 and that's a whole different story. Yeah. Uh, but we use usually the zero to 10, uh, zero being, you know, going to bed, uh, <laughs> 10 being like the hardest effort that you've ever done mm -hmm. with the marathon by the end, you'll probably get to a 10, but you'll start, you know, for most people roughly at like a six, six and a half, and it'll kind of almost steadily climb up from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say the more, you know, quote unquote elite you are, maybe the higher up you're starting on that number, mm -hmm. uh, a seven or an eight, but you've trained yourself to withstand that for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Like you said, heart rate isn't a very reliable, you know, predictor mm -hmm. for marathon performance. Uh, it's, it's interesting because in cycling power meters are a lot more accurate and, mm -hmm have actually overtaken even RPE to, to some yeah. extent, yeah. Uh, but not in the running world yet. We're just not reliable enough mm -hmm. uh, to kind of use that as a, as a good mm -hmm. gauge. Yeah. I think the difference is too, um, me being a triathlete and a cycler myself, like when we're talking about cycling, like we actually have a, um, a bike, you know, like a, a machine, so to speak, um, to actually base that power off of a little bit versus when we're running, it's just our bodies. And so that might be a little bit of a difference as well. Like when we're on a bike, it's, it's the pedals, it's the chain, it's all that, how much power is that outputting? So I wonder if that might be a little bit of that difference between cycling as well as running overall too. I would, I would buy that, especially because in running, we're damaging the physical structures that are holding everything up. Like we, yeah, to talk about that fatigue resistance, like we beat that tendon up so that it stops being as kind of load worthy. We, mm -hmm. you know, are pounding those muscles to the point where they don't function the same as they used to. Where in cycling, it's you're not having the physical pounding and and deterioration of the actual tissue. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably actually a lot to do with that. I hadn't really mm -hmm. put it together like that until just now, but mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'm really glad that you mentioned earlier, like being at a marathon, we should be kind of at a scale or at an RPE of like 6.5 or so. I think that's a really good number. And as I was doing some digging, some research, one thing I like to use with a lot of um, my patients and whatnot, too, is they're like getting back into running is I really like this scale that or the study, I should say, and it's by Danta et al. And we'll include this in the show notes, but it actually like looked at what is our rating of perceived exertion on that zero to 10 scale versus our actual lactate threshold and our LT1 and as well as our LT2. And kind of what they found was 
a RPE of like 4.3. And again, we're probably not getting to like the 0.3, but if we roughly put that around four, four and a half kind of equates to that aerobic threshold or that, um, that spot where if we go above that, we start to breathe harder, we start to accumulate more lactate, but we're still clearing that. And then the number that was associated with our lactate threshold was six and a half. So that's kind of right at that point at a rating of perceived exertion of six and a half is pretty close to our lactate threshold. And um, that's a really good number to kind of base it on because they found that that RPE scale was pretty reliable. And when they looked at it with a number of different runners, like those scales of 4.3 and 6.5 really equated to those dividing lines between those zones, which is really interesting to actually have that um, kind of develop itself and show itself in actual research too. Yeah, it's it always kind of blows my mind that as people like we're so different, so many different experiences, and then we have some of these you know near universal uh, kind of things encoded into us. Um, mm -hmm. It's a whole separate philosophical yeah. kind of thing. But uh, yeah, and it, Dante's the exercise phys equivalent of Taylor Swift. Uh, oh, that's awesome! He puts out a lot of of good work. Cool. Uh, uh, but yeah, anyways, the RPE is such a reliable kind of tool in part, you know, to tie it to that central governor, like that's how hard we think we're going. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about, you know, running, you know, one half mental, mm -hmm. it, like that's true, but it's how that mentality perceives the physical mm -hmm. symptoms that are going in. Uh, you know, great study that looked at, you know, because Kipchoge is always smiling, but mm -hmm having you you put a smile on your face your brain like thinks it's rpe gets lower essentially mm -hmm. uh, we're simplifying it but if we convince ourselves that we're having a good time our brain just doesn't care about the pain as much right? it mm -hmm. lowers that that rpe mm -hmm. uh, so it, you know, it kind of plays into that pacing yeah yes you might have a goal you know, whatever, a Boston qualifier for, for you, Matt, that's probably what 305 or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like that might be your time goal, but the best way to get that is to train yourself so that you can run a, well, now at this point, you should probably be able to run three hours. Yeah. Otherwise you're not making it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to train at that. So that that effort is 6.5, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on that RPE scale, mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying, oh, I need to run, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's exact base. Going back maybe, and this is just a personal anecdote, but probably going back like 10 years ago, I was running my second half marathon and I was in the starting corral, you know, ready to go, ready to, ready to run. And there's this older gentleman in front of me. And I've remembered this to this day and it sticks with me with every race. And he said to the person next to him, you know, if you're not having fun, either speed up or slow down. And that's just a perfect example of like trying to have that fun and that positive mentality and based, you know, that that's bringing in the effort. You're like, do you feel like you're working too hard? Do you feel like you're not working hard enough? Where do you feel like you need to be effort wise to be at that point where you feel like you're giving it your all and having a good time doing it as well? Yeah, I think sometimes we lose sight of like the enjoyment and the, the social aspect of it and the like yeah, if we're having fun, I, I'm a huge believer in this. I've seen some studies, especially around like recoverability, but that the having fun with it, like you're going to get more out of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like you said, mostly most of the studies I've seen have been around like recoverability mm-hmm. and like in social situations or like mm-hmm. you know, feeling like you're part of a, a tribe mm-hmm. uh, is that kind of underlying theory around mm-hmm. it. But that makes a lot of sense to me. Like we we want to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even if it does suck and it hurts and <laughs> Ultimately, what it comes down to is we're running for a reason. And that's because deep down, we probably enjoy it to some extent. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> most of us are, are, you know, a little out there and we we run to deal with our own issues. But Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a part of it, too. But also to kind of bring it a little bit full circle too. you know, when we relate it back to our exertion, our rating of perceived exertion, how far we're exerting itself. We've talked about heat. We've talked about nutrition. If it's too hot, you know, our rating of perceived exertion is going to increase. And if we kind of run out of fuel, that also rating that RPE and our effort level is also going to increase as well. So that has a huge basis and huge tie to all of the factors, both pacing, um, nutrition, as well as the overall heat too. Yeah. I think, you know, you kind of asked about pacing for a marathon and we talked about it in like that rough kind of thing, like, oh yeah, just a six and a half. Well, on courses that undulate a whole bunch, like with a big hill in it, how do you yeah. deal with that? Well, you can let effort be that guide. You know, you might let the pace lag a little bit on that uphill mm-hmm. while still running that six and a half effort. But then on the downhill, that pace is going to, well, hopefully get faster. Mm-hmm. And the effort should stay roughly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can kind of still use that as a as a lodestar as a kind of guiding light for you. Yeah. Uh, but it, like that's how you can kind of use that that you know RPE to help pace even on a course that changes a whole bunch. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people will have different sensitivities to that too. Like I am six foot five. I'm a bigger, taller dude. Like uphills are just really hard for me. So I tend to slow down a little bit more than a lot of people on uphills, but I'm also a six foot five. I make that up on the downhills. Uh, <laughs> so like I, I kind of tweak it that way where maybe somebody that's shorter and quicker, you know, more fleet footed, they don't slow down as much on the downhill or on the uphill, but they're also not going as much faster mm-hmm. on the downhill. But we're probably roughly running the same effort kind of both yeah. ways. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really good point. And another question that kind of comes off of that, you know, some people that may be listening may not have um, realized how effective RPE can really be and may want to start using it. Um, I guess one question would be, if you're a runner that is just starting to use RPE the first time, are you going to be like completely accurate with it? Or is it going to take a little bit of practice and a little bit of training while using it to kind of pinpoint those effort levels for you overall. Yeah, I think I have yet to find somebody that has nailed it the first time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite workouts is basically like a three minute, two minute, one minute uh, workout where it's three minutes at threshold. So basically at like a, you know, six or a seven and then two minutes at like a five or a four, like just kind of a float run. And then one minute at like an eight. And you just cycle through those kind of things. Almost everyone goes out too hard that first couple of times because you're just learning what those kind of mean to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, that's 
just a kind of a way to cycle through things, but you start to learn those numbers pretty quick when you get your butt kicked a few times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, that's, I think it's a learning experience to kind of understand what a six and a half means in practice or what a seven means. Yeah. I mean, just like anything else, we talked about it with fueling, um, practice makes perfect. So we actually have to use those strategies, understand how they affect us to become really, really efficient at it. They know, same thing. Don't try anything new on race day. Same goes for rating a perceived exertion. Like you should have some experience of using that in your training to really understand how those effort levels affect you and to really dial in your key effort levels overall. Yeah, one could say you need to strive for mastery of art. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I appreciate that, Jack. <laughs> That's what it all comes down to is, again, and the last question I have is essentially how does all of this relate to mastery and mastering a marathon? And we have to control those factors and we have to master and practice them to the best of our ability to master that distance, master our effort, master our pace, all of those different things with that. Um, would you agree? Or do you have a different insight on that? I would, I would agree. Uh, I think, you know, at least how this kind of relates to mastery for me is that you can't compete at a high level, whatever that means to you, you can't execute at the highest level. If you don't understand the kind of things that are going into it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we talked about you know, mastery to me is like learning to control the things that we can control. Well, you have to understand what those controls are, you know, yeah. you get put into a big room with a bunch of knobs, uh, you know, like you put me in a television control set. Like I have no clue what all the knobs are and mm-hmm. all those kind of things. Uh, like mastery is learning what each knob does and each, you know, button. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This analogy is falling apart quickly, but no, that's a great analogy. Cause especially with RPE, you got to dial from, you know, zero to 10. What is a six and a half? What's a four? What's a eight? You know, you have to dial that in pun, not intended on that one, but you have to like figure out, you know, what that is for you and how that instrument or control really works for you. Um, when it, what it comes down to really. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think uh, we've talked for probably just about long enough at this point, mm-hmm. but the part two would be then, you know, how to, to train, to start to learn what that four mm-hmm. is, what that six is. Yeah. 100%. So I'm definitely excited to, for that, for sure. Um, before we kind of finish finalize here, any other last thoughts or ideas, Jack? Yeah, there's, there's so much to this that we haven't covered. Um, yeah. you know, we could fill books with, with what we haven't covered and what we don't yeah. know, but yeah. Uh, if anyone has any questions, like I'm always open to, to answering them, you know, reach out to Matt or I like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, that was my next question. How can people reach you? How can people find, um, your stuff, whether it's on social media, website, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'd say, uh, you can reach me at Jack at infinity If you ever have questions, uh, you can go to the, to my website, infinity uh, I'm on social media. I, I really despise social media, but I know I have to be on it. Uh, so like on Instagram, it's at infinity Runco. Uh, you can find me there. I try, I, I know I need to post more, but I, I'm not a happier person for having social media. So, <laughs> uh, I try not to be on it as, as sure. much as I am. Uh, but yeah, anyways, you can reach out to me on any of those. That's the easy way to, to get a hold of me. 
Cool. And if, especially if people are interested in um, talking about your coaching services, those are the best ways to reach out to you as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, please, please reach out. Uh, if you're interested in coaching or having that conversation, I'm, I'm always open to, to the conversation. So cool. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Jack. I think we got this podcast started off on a really, really good note overall. So I appreciate your willingness to uh, be a guest and share your insight and expertise. And um, we have, you know, part twos and three coming up. Um, and so I'm excited for those and kind of spill more knowledge on all of that information as well. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Uh, hopefully if anyone's made it this far, uh, thanks for listening to my rambling and, <laughs> uh, appreciate you, Matt, for having me on. I, you know, I'm a huge believer in just sharing this knowledge. Like the smarter we can all be, the better you know, the sport's going to be. So appreciate you creating this kind of medium for people to, to get a little smarter. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, with that, everyone, thanks for listening to episode one of the Mastering Miles podcast. Um, more to come in the future, but as always, happy and healthy training, everyone. 